This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hey, good morning, Ernest. Good morning, Ernest. How are you doing today? Doing good. It has been a busy week, so I haven't uh, done any prep work for interviews, uh, but I figure we can start uh, planning it out now and debriefing over a season, uh, last season of the podcast. Okay. So, yeah, so the, the thesis I've been talking about is this idea that um, we talk about how we want to have collective governance, right? And we want to have the idea for people to be able to kind of determine their own destiny and be self-sustaining communities. But we also want to have people part of a larger culture where there is a sense of we are engaged in a group project and shared goals and some shared values so that we can continue holding each other accountable and evolving as a society. Mm-hmm. And so the, the thesis we have been that came up last time was merging these two ideas of uh, rich documents or wise documents and participatory humanistic democracy into the idea that the um, the religion, if you will, the central tenet that everyone in the society needs to share is a robust mechanism for documenting decisions. Exactly. Right. And so this, uh, we coined the term docucracy. Um, I use the term datocracy, which is slightly easier to pronounce for a friend of mine who's working on uh, a startup that is uh, trying to help organizations make sense of their data or make sense of their data processes. One of the interesting uh, themes that has been coming up in the study of organizations is uh, a a phenomenon which is not a good name for it yet. The best term I've heard is a data brawl. And as you may know, you know, companies are usually run based on financial statements and quarterly reports. Mm-hmm. Right? So every quarter they have to report their, their public companies have to report to the SEC. And one consequence of that is that these numbers are very important because they become part of the immutable public record that is part of corporate governance and federal law and for both tax purposes and investment purposes, they have to generate these quarterly documents. And one of the odd uh, consequences of, so in the old world, there was one mainframe and one IT department, and there was only one set of numbers. And there's a wonderful joke that says, a man with one watch knows what time it is. A man with two watches is never sure, or I guess one clock and two clock. And this is the problem. In the past, there was only one set of data and one person you could ask. And so everything seemed regular and predictable. But in the modern data uh, staff or the modern enterprise, there are many different sources of data and they rarely agree. And so every quarter there's this thing called the data brawl that occurs like three days before the quarterly uh, board meeting where uh, different organizations have different ways of resolving it. But a common one is the CEO asks three different executives 
for a set of numbers, and whoever reports first is the one that the CEO assumes is correct. And if anyone uh, submits one later, he'll yell at them and saying, why don't your numbers match his numbers? And this is an ongoing problem. I was reading about how Winston Churchill had this problem during the Second World War, where they literally could not agree on how many aircraft had been produced. And that, that at some point they just they like brought in like some retired judge to try and reconcile the numbers from the Ministry of Production and the Ministry of Defense, and they were off by like fifty thousand aircraft out of you know less than a million, and it was just crazy. But the reality is is that when you are in a situation where you're trying to produce as fast as possible, you know, uh, it is more important to be uh, responsive than it is to be reliable. But the consequence is that you lose track of things and, you know, it didn't cost them the war, but it was certainly a big headache to like not know how many aircraft you have or where they all went. Uh, so anyway, mm -hmm. this has been a problem, you know, in the leading edge of, uh, I guess, military and things like that, but it's become uh, such that everyone has this problem. And so the, and I'm still working with my friend to figure out exactly how they solve this problem or even if they solve this problem. But the thesis that I've been pushing with him is that, well, it sounds like in order to avoid this sort of data anarchy where people are fighting over what's the right data or the wrong data, it seems the minimum thing I need is a common machine readable format that allows me to do two things to know which decisions led to this data set and which data sets led to this decision. And it led to this interesting, uh, so they use the term data set very much the same way you and I use the term documentation. Um, in that, uh, you know, the thing that is, like one of the, th the things that's come up is that you can't really have fully automated governance. At some point, human beings have to make a decision about what is in and what is out of the data set, right? We talked about how the fact that even in a place where everyone has perfect information and perfectly good motive, you can still disagree about what will happen in the future, right? And how mm -hmm. to weight those different risks. Uh, like as a, as a dad, for example, a lot of my arbitrary decisions are about how much margin I need. Like the goal is to get to school on time. So, um, you know, and so I say, well, let's everyone downstairs by 8.30 so we can leave at 8.35. And like, you know, and that means you have to stop playing your video games at 8.25. And, you know, these are kind of arbitrary margins because it's certainly possible that everyone could show up at 8.33 and we leave at 8.35. And, you know, it's also possible that we get to school. Now, in some cases, it's a hard cutoff. Like if my son has to catch a bus, then... You know, there's a big difference between getting there at 8.34 and 8.36. Uh, because if the bus leaves at 8.35, you know, and he's not there at 8.36, then we have a whole other set of problems and crises that we have to deal with. And so, anyway, so someone has to kind of, and, someone, and interestingly, we are dealing with that as a society in the context of the CDC and mask requirements. I don't know if you've been following some of the controversies there. Uh, yeah, I've heard. That. Yeah, but the interesting yeah. thing is that yeah, is that there's the science and then there's the policy. So, for example, the science says, well, 
if you have a population of fully vaccinated people, they can be indoors without masks and there's very minimal risk, right? That is a scientific assessment. But then the policy question is, do we then tell people that this store uh, doesn't require people who have been vaccinated to wear, fully vaccinated to wear masks? And the problem is, is that the policy uh, may or may not make sense, right? Because uh, if you are not verifying that people are fully vaccinated, then it may be the wise policy is to say everyone should wear masks so we don't have to determine who's been vaccinated or not. And if someone's not wearing a mask, you just say wear a mask. You don't have to argue with them about their vaccination status. Right. Mm -hmm. And from a public health perspective, the policy, because there's a margin of error, right? You don't know for sure who's wearing a mask or what it means to be fully vaccinated. And so uh, it is a, a hard problem. What you really need is you get someone to say, uh, have the authority to say, okay, in this context, our policy is X because the real world consequences of the policy are different than the theoretical consequences in an ideal world, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to have those decisions. Um, at the same, uh, but the, this is where uh, societies tend to tie themselves with knots. Because when you say, on the one hand, you say, well, we want to have evidence. But as someone said, it is uh, very hard. The problem with data is it only tells you about the past. It can never tell you about the future, unless you make a bunch of arbitrary assumptions. And uh, the interesting thing is we are getting better and better at finding ways to aggregate and track data. But oddly enough, we don't seem to be getting much better at finding ways to automate and track decisions. Uh, before you continue, I, you mentioned uh, uh, that the, uh, we should have a common machine-readable format. To yeah. me, it's important, it is important that, you know, that, yeah, a machine can read it, but also a human should be able to read it as well. Just like, we have documents, yeah. you know, right now we have papers and people can read them, right? You can find out what happened through papers. Um, we should automate that, but the uh, person should always be able to read that, those formats easily. We should make sure that the format is uh, people-readable and machine-readable. So we have to make the machines uh, smarter at reading these documents so that if software is it's broken, it's unavailable, something happened, you always can go to the uh to the to the document and figure out what happened. Just like, you know, currently we, we you know, when you vote and there are controversies, you always can go to the paper ballot, you know, but sometimes you know, out you know, ignoring the fact that there's some machines, voting machines and whatever. But you should always be able to have a a a document that a person can read. So that there's no discrepancy. There's like, okay, the software failed, it was hacked, it was whatever. You can trust, you know, as much as you can trust that the document is okay and that you can read it. So that, you know, like I said, there's always going to be a human in the process. So there should be a human in the humans in the process of figuring out what happened when things go wrong 
and going through the document instead of you know having to read XML and all that and you know, it's, it's kind of difficult. Uh, we should have machines that can read just documents that people can also read. I think that's an important thing of uh, of, of this thing. Just like we cannot interrogate AI to, to ask it, hey, how do you be, uh, came to the decision? Um, you know, when it comes to identified animals or driving a car, we cannot integrate this, this system because it's a black box. So we have to make sure that it is not a black box uh, or that at least we can go to the document that it's using, the information that it's using, and figure out what it is. Not just, you know, let it become a black box and a whole bunch of formulas and, 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 and equations that we don't know, we cannot figure out when, when things go wrong, what happened in there. Unless there's a bunch of logs, but then we we have the Tesla problem that you know there's so many logging or there was so many so many logging that the computers were kaput when people you know drove a lot, so that's also a problem. But we have to figure out how we go back uh, and figure out what happened when things go wrong. That's important. Yeah, no, that's really good, and I think that's actually a really key part that maybe we can spend our our talk uh, focusing on is what attributes need to be true of this document. And how do we describe that? Because in my mind, I was thinking, well, we write in English, but we have to make it machine readable. But of course, other people start from the perspective of, well, you know, we have all this data, but we have to make it human readable. Um, so there's like a bunch of attributes here, right? So one is you want it to be machine readable and human readable. You want it to be um, uh, immutable, right? So that in sense, it is. Uh, you know, you can't change it. You can update it, but you can't un unwrite it. You want it to be um, at least relatively public in the sense that, like, everyone who's affected by this document should be able to read it. And so, you know, maybe not everything has to be fully public, you know, from day one, but there has to be a sense in which... Um, that as this document affects people's lives, they get to see the decision that was made uh, and hold those accountable who made it. Does that make sense? And then there's also this thing about, um, let's call it intelligibility. This is what you were talking about, the idea of smart documents or wise documents. It's not enough that it is readable. It has to be understandable, right? Mm -hmm. Ideally. And you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that once you get beyond sort of hard binary things like is it machine readable or human readable, which is, of course, itself a bit fuzzy, but we kind of understand we, we can define those things well. Things like understandable become the sliding scale, right, in terms like, well, do you speak English? Do you have a cultural context to be able to understand these things? And you're never going to get those perfect, right? Um, like I can write much clearer and easily understandable English uh, with a lot of effort than I can write a uh, adequate, right? So the whole reason we have marketing and literature, right? Is that there's better and worse ways to explain things and uh, you have to make some assumptions about your audience regardless. But maybe that's the way to look at it. This is a goal to aspire towards, right? You can, mm -hmm. you, you really make it like, well, again, it's another decision someone human has to make. It's like, okay, this is good enough, right? Or this is not good enough. And 
uh, you know, there's a a, uh, a pyramid of, you know, we have that already. Like, for example, we have Internet RFC, and there's an RFC explaining how to write a good RFC. And that is interpreted mm -hmm. by the editor to say, okay, this is acceptable. It is well formed according to the rules of RFCs. Therefore, I will accept it or no, you have to go back and clean it up. Right, so there's always that thing. So, um, um, so let's call the ideal document as one that is universally understandable as kind of the, the high bar, right? Is that it needs to be, sorry, the ideal is for it to be universally understandable. The minimum is that it needs to be universally readable, right? Mm. That there is a format that can be well parsed. And that's something you can at least encode in the algorithmic form and say, yes, you know, this document can be fed into this machine or this community of humans, and they all agree that they can read it, right? That is a plausible thing to have a binary yes, no around. Uh, universally understandable is a goal that you can't really know for sure if it's been satisfied unless people, uh, you know, even, uh, I guess, strictly speaking, the only, well, someone said, the only way you can know that you understand something is that if it breaks it and you're able to fix it. And now, what do you mean by understand? Uh, uh, understand I'm readable. Okay, readable is like so readable a is, format. I, yeah. Well, the problem is, is readable is something that you can come up with useful proxies for that are pretty good. You can come up with pretty good measures of readability. There's both the sense in which, like, machine readable is easy, right? If you feed it to a machine, it can uh, parse it without errors, mm. right? So there's a concept of machine readable. Um, there is even a concept of English readability, which is a grade level score, right? So the more complex mm -hmm. a sentence, uh, the less readable it is. So, you know, see Dick run is a very low grade, it's very high readability or a low grade level, right? A first grader can read a single word easily or even a sentence of three words. But then to have a complex sentence like the ones that we are using in this podcast, such as this one, uh, that's a college level readability. It's kind of like a grade level 14, or it's, it's very, has a low readability score. You're, so you're are, using that as an example? Yeah. It's, 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 so the word readable, there's various technical measures that you can define which capture the idea of readability fairly well okay uh, and you can have sort of object you can have objective measures of readability understandability is much harder like you can get a, a um, legal document uh, and you can even get one that is very readable in the sense that it uses short sentences and small words but it mm -hmm. can be not at all understandable if you don't understand the words or the context in which they will be interpreted right that's what exactly because they understand what a court is likely to say. And the reason we have judges is because two layers, lawyers that are well-trained could look at the same document and read it two different ways. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's why, uh, like, that is 
hard. Where, where do you start? Like you start a document and then okay, you write a, a sentence and then how do you define what each word means? Like uh, you have to assume that people know that, but there's no, like I said, there's no way. So you have to like, we will have, even have to define the how do you understand the document in the document. So it's um, I'm taking it all the way to you know uh, to, to the extreme, but really you have oh we have the uh, the Voyager case the, the Voyager um, you know probes that Voyager. left the so, yeah solar system. So they're supposed to have uh, a language that we assume other entities uh, will be able to understand, but will they? I don't know, right? Right, you have some. There's a fascinating um, uh, Neil Stevenson science fiction story. I've talked about him before, uh, but this is one of his more esoteric ones, I think. It's called Anathem. And one of the plot devices is a spaceship that travels between universes. And the universes all have similar uh, physical laws, um, but they have, and they have, uh, they they have slightly divergent histories. So the histories are parallel in some ways, but they are uh, divergent in important ways. And uh, the languages, of course, are completely different. Uh, because they've had, you know, small differences in cultural evolution create massive differences in linguistic evolution. And one of the things that they talk about is how do you understand people from a different universe? And they use this paradigm of the cave where you have worms that can only sense motion, uh, bats that can only only hear, and um, there's some um, um like um what is it plants that can only sense light i forget what the third one is but the idea is that in this cave and they have to solve a common problem of like some predator that comes and eats all of them and the um the argument they make is that well this is actually how our brain works is that you have different organs each sense one thing and they have to com communicate using these like electric signals and how do they create some common meanings? Says, well, the only thing that they have in common that they share an interest in is that they inhabit a three-dimensional space. And so the idea is that the mathematics of three-dimensional spaces are how our brains organize data, and they're the thing that we can use to communicate. So we can draw pictures, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So the only thing in the Voyager that we feel like people ought to be able to interpret is the pictures engraved on in gold on a little plaque, right? The idea is that whatever these beings are, they should have some notion of three-dimensional space and they should be able to see or feel these grooves on a disc and form a two-dimensional, uh, an image of this, uh, a two-dimensional image of this thing. And the idea is that one of the things on the picture is the spacecraft itself. And so that hopefully they can project the three-dimensional spacecraft onto this two-dimensional image. And then having two-dimensional images of a human Next to it, they can infer that there's a three-dimensional thing called a human being that is associated with the spacecraft. Um, and then they have, you know, a binary encoded message. So the assumption is, is that, you know, a second one is that if you build any sort of computation, you will eventually come across the idea of binary numbers. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can come up with binary 
messages and then uh, signals of various kinds, right? And then you can count in binary and you can get to build up this idea of numbers and then you can build up things like that. And so uh, interestingly, the way to solve this problem or one way to solve this problem is that, okay, one of the problems we have is that um, um, words, so what is a word and what is language? This is actually a hard philosophical problem. I don't know if you happen to have an opinion on that. What is a I've read about that. Like, yeah, a word is formed out of phonemes or, or little parts. Phonemes, right. right. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. From, from, a, from an acoustic perspective, right, there is the sound of a word, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about language or concepts, what is a word, right? If we're trying to communicate something and be understood, right? So there's the mechanics of the sound, what is encoded as sound or as letters or hieroglyphics, right? There's mm -hmm. different ways to represent a word uh, externally for the, but internally, what is a word? What is, what is meaning? What is understanding? You know, there's a, this is a, maybe a segue, but I've heard of um, as an experiment where they uh, put probes in, in a person's uh, head to read uh -huh. his uh, or her, um, you know, electrical Mental processes. Uh, firing. Yeah. Yes. So this person was giving a phrase to think about over and over, and uh, so they, they, they recorded the uh, these uh, uh, firings, and then they had two or three other people uh, think of the concept that the phrase was representing, and then a computer mm -hmm. was supposed to figure out what was that, what was what was it, and yeah, it got like. Like seventy-five or eighty percent of the of the the meaning. So it's like our brains encode meaning in the same way, whether we speak under language or we're from under the culture. If you um, uh, you know, the concept of words and things in our brain is not is not is is the same. No matter what culture you come from, no matter what language you speak, you speak. I should find a link to this. It's very important. It's, it's, it's very interesting. So yeah, but I think yeah, that's, like, it's worth talking about. Like so, so I think the thing is, is that like to an eighty percent statement, that's actually true, right? Is that we have this. We, so let's use the word uh, as the um, like the external thing, right? A word is something you can decompose into letters or phonemes or sounds or whatever, right? There's a tangible thing that you can encode digitally. And let's use the word concept to refer to the thing in our brain, right? And then you can say, well, you know, these concepts, you have ways that you can describe them. And this is an argument I had uh, epic level with a friend of mine, which is that, okay, but what if I have a concept like snow? And I have to go explain that to my ancestors in India who have never seen ice. Right, and so is it possible for me to explain snow to them? And I can say what it's like, but I can say it's like wet, cold sand, which it kind of is, except it's made of water. And like, okay, I can define it, but would you say that they understand snow? Hmm. I 
I would say no. Yeah, you say no because, like, unless you have this experience, then you don't really have a good reference. You can have analogies, but you don't have a different reference. So this is the interesting thing about uh, semantics versus syntax. Mm-hmm. And it's always fascinating to me that computer scientists obsess over syntax and they teach it, you know, at, in day one. But they basically mm-hmm. have almost nothing to say about semantics. Like there's some really high level advanced CS courses that talk about deton- uh, denotational semantics. But I've never heard mm-hmm. anyone, even those, those few people who claim they understand it, admit that they never actually use it to solve any real problems because it, it is just not a thing that is terribly useful. And also because, uh, as I'm not sure if it's you or somebody else had the conversation with about how mathematicians, um, uh, think math is reality. And so they're trying to map computation onto mathematics. And I think that that's an inherently flawed mindset. I think of mathematics as a subset of computation rather than the other way around. Um, anyway, the, uh, the idea is that, uh, so this is actually something I've, I've thought about once, is that, uh, so um, words are a digital representation of an analog concept, right? We have a concept of a game, for example, right? Or mm-hmm. a sport. But like, if you want to get into a fight, uh, ask someone who play, tell someone who plays golf that it is a game and not a sport. And they will get very offended at you because they, you know, golf being a sport is part of the, the cultural heritage of it. But like, you know, it's a fair question. Is golf really a sport or is it a game of skill like playing pool? Right, very few people would call you know shooting pool a sport, but how is that really different than golf? You know, say, well, because you walk around. Okay, then if you're riding in a cart, is it no longer a sport? <laughs> right? Is miniature golf yeah. a sport or a game? Right? You know, there's all these things that like, okay, the concept is kind of fuzzy. We have paradigmatic cases, like, okay, baseball is a game. That seems you know, a, a safe statement. Checkers is a game, or baseball is a sport, and checkers is a game, uh, mm-hmm. right? And you know, but you know, there's, there's, what's interesting is that even uh, it's not just that our words are imprecise; the concepts themselves are fuzzy. And mm-hmm. I often think of it like a uh, like a Gaussian blur, right? There's certain things which are paradigmatic, which are at the center of it, and mm-hmm. clearly, you know, fit the word. Uh, and then there are things which are borderline. And one of the problems we have is that we develop emotional attachments to the words, not just the concepts. Mm-hmm. And, and this is one of the problems you have uh, in this data brawl thing, is that like uh, one of our uh, bugbears we keep running into is this idea of what is an active device. And I discovered that we have this really bizarre problem in that there's active in the technical sense of a device being, um, you know, alive on our cloud and communicating with it. And there's active in a financial sense of it's a real deployed device that we can build customers for. And, you know, what I've discovered is that um, a couple of strange things. One is that uh, people are religious about this. Like the finance people say, well, active device obviously means it has to be active for billing purposes and the other people should change their name it's like you know this is my definition of this word and i get to use it and it's it's almost this uh, linguistic imperialism like you can't take my word away from me like you know as a political example the word marriage 
for example, mm-hmm. right? You know, like who gets to define the word marriage? Well, like why can't you use a different? Like, no, we have to use that word. Uh, you know, I've been telling Christians for years we should give up using the word marriage to describe what we do, like pick some biblical term for the thing that we care about, and let the secular courts define the word marriage. But people don't take that well. <laughs> is they have mm-hmm. these strong emotional attachments to these words. And uh, the second thing is that people will be emotionally attached to a word, and yet I've had someone actually, like, who's fighting for this, actually say, okay, what do you mean by this? You mean this is, and they realized halfway through the conversation that they were using that word to mean two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were so caught up in defending the word that they never actually bothered to define it. And this, this hard problem of who gets to define words gets to the summer. So, so, so I have a theory about how to fix this, uh, mm-hmm. which is that um, uh, this was an idea I had. Uh, I, I don't know if I told you about this before. I have a list of hard problems to solve. Uh, mm-hmm. and oh, me too. One to ten to five. Oh, right. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. but, I, but, I, but I have a ranking scale. And the way I rank problems are how long has this problem been around? So the problem of governance um, mm-hmm. is about a 6,000-year-old problem. Uh, the Sumerian king lists, which are roughly contemporary with like the biblical myths of Adam and so forth, are around 6,000 years. And that's the first time you see evidences of complex human society. So trying to figure out how to create a complex human society is a 6,000-year-old problem. Uh, by comparison, English is like a 500-year-old problem. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, when you say uh, English, you mean uh, English government or English language? The, 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 the English language. So like replacing English by itself is like... Uh, uh, so I call that like... That's sort of a level five on my scale is defining English. Uh, is replacing English. So I had, I had this, and the idea was, um, and this is kind of gets to the point of understandability, is so in order to have people have a common understanding of words, they have to see them used in a certain context where they have the same experience. So, the, so the idea is just, just like words encapsulate a concept or represent mm-hmm. a concept, a concept is itself an abstraction from experiences. Uh, someone once mm-hmm. called it uh, thinginess. To be a thing means it has mm-hmm. to be durable in the sense that that um, uh, status, uh, like some, something that has to like um, occur more than once, or there's no point in having the concept of the thing. Uh, you, know, you have to be able to have a persistence to it. And there has to be a, what they call it, durable and compressible. There has to be a variety of phenomena that you can encapsulate under a single concept. And so this idea of, um, so the idea is that we have experiences which create both the, and I think this is the, um, the reason this is hard. There's both the um, intellectual, conceptual content of those experiences, and there's the emotional affective component of those experiences. Mm-hmm. And so like, even a simple word like father, for example, it seems like a really well-defined term you know, genetically, but depending on your relationship with your father, that can be a very positive association or a very negative association. And when, like, you know, the Bible talks about God as father, some people have a very negative reaction to that because of their very negative experiences with their human fathers. And so then people get into fights about, like, can you use that word? Should you use that word? If you don't use that word, is that good or bad? And, you know, there's all these 
um, uh, fights we get about these terms that, um, like for example, I'm trying to find a cantaloupe for my wife and it's like, okay, there's honeydew melons, there's Tuscan melons, are those little kind of cantaloupes, is that good enough for what my wife needs? I don't know, I'm in the store right now and this is a uh, real problem I am facing uh, that, um, you know, I have the word honeydew melon in this and I know the context is my wife wants to make a fruit salad and so um, is it worth doing or not doing? So I'm going to trust that the intent may actually be, and that's the other thing is that you can only kind of understand words if you understand the context in which they are being used and why they were being used. And of course that is ultimately, um, so this is the interesting idea uh, that I just pitched to you before I ramble off too much and forget my shopping list is that the only way to create common understandability is to give people a common set of experiences. Mm -hmm. So, so, tr so yeah. traditionally, uh, that's actually one of the theories about how language evolved, is that there were these rituals mm -hmm. that people would assign words to, and that, uh, you know, like the coming of age ceremony is a classic one, right? And there, there's like, you are a man now. And so a man means someone who's willing to undergo pain in the context of, uh, a community of men. And that's a really useful definition if you live in a warrior culture, as most are, where you have to be called upon to defend the tribe, right? And so the, the rituals created the context to define what the word is. Now, fortunately, we live, you know, arguably for the first time in human history in a post-militaristic society where, you know, uh, being the need to defend oneself from foreign tribes is a marginal part of one's existence and society's existence rather than the central defining feature. Uh, which is, you know, like I said, Pluto is better than, than Mars uh, as a god of culture, uh, even if it has its own downside. But then the question is, is okay, if you have a distributed world where uh, you don't have, you know, the shared thick culture of rituals and traditions, and history to look back upon to define your identity, where do you find that common sense of meaning? And my hypothesis is that, well, mathematics isn't rich enough. Uh, just you know, three-dimensional space and mathematical theory is not a sufficient thing. But I would argue that it is possible that uh, computational systems actually have a semantics that is rich enough to give us some understanding of certain key words. So for example, we have uh, computational definitions of words like trust. Uh, and you can say, you know, uh, it, you know like for example, in, in computation, computer systems, trust, a trusted system is one that is allowed to violate the policy, interestingly enough, right? It is the free agent, like the judge in the courtroom, who gets to decide what things mean. And to trust them means that they have the power to, that they're undone. So like, you can start to, you can imagine that there's a way to build a technical system that, um, especially with cryptocurrency and things like this, where you're bringing both notions of trust and notions of economic value, where we could say, okay, well, this word is the word that's used, to, like, so for example, I, 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 I invent words, so I created this language, uh, what the, 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 uh, the, the language I've created, uh, one of the words is app 
which uh, you know, the mnemonic for it is empowering purpose, right? The thing, the reason that you do things. And then mm -hmm. the is a word meaning context. So like, we know what a bit is, right? A bit is even the data. Uh, but there's a thing that is like, when you send a message, the fact that you sent the message has meaning independent of whether the message is a one or a zero. Uh, mm -hmm. Just the fact that there is a message, it's, and there, there wasn't a good word for that, so I call that the but, the thing smaller than a bit. And, and that's the context of the message. Um, and, that, and so the language itself is called EPA, which is the, 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 the context for expressing purpose. And so the idea is that if you can build a canonical set of computational systems, and then you define sort of canonical uh, words to say, okay, in this system, it means this. Okay, so this is, so like uh, one kind of fun exercise I do, this is what I do in my spare time, is make up words for things. I feel like don't have good ones is the word uh, and and one thing about the system is everything is reciprocal because zero and one are complements and so you can kind of have the sense of duality built into the language and you have um, uh, the word uh, so so one thing you have a competition system is the idea of buffers right you're filling things and removing things and so I have mm -hmm. two words look which is a system that empties itself into another, uh, which also means it is ready to be filled again. And the word food, which is the reverse of that, which means a system that is being filled up in order to be uh, ready to pour itself out into something else. So there's sort of two verbs there that create the sense of emptying and filling. And to me, that's kind of uh, at least one possible paradigm for explaining virtue, right, is when you see uh, so the idea that um, when I talk about, like, we have a judge who's invested with authority, okay, he is being full, right? He is being filled up so he can pour himself out in service to others. And then when he actually executes his action, he is in some sense emptying himself of that authority by encoding that into a system. So the idea is that, you know, um, that you could have a hard, rigorous, computational definition of certain terms is like this is what the word means in this precise context uh, of a mm -hmm. digital computational system and the theory is that you could build up a semantic uh, uh, foundation of some of these core social political relational contexts so at least you could be clear in this context this is what that word means and we can all reliably agree on and prove that and then we can argue about how well they apply to this current situation. And the interesting hypothesis behind that is, is mm -hmm. that um, um, is the set of virtues and relationships necessary for a robust computational system sufficient to describe uh, the virtues necessary for uh, human society? Um, and you know we probably won't go until it actually happens or doesn't happen, but it's it, it seems like that's the only way you could uh, approach this idea of understandability and giving people that set of of, uh, of uh, a digital uh, mirror, if you will, of these concepts we care about. Now you, right, you use the rant. word <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, you use the word concept a lot right. Mm -hmm. What what is I mean yeah not concept um, 
context. What is context? How do you, uh, because the context is something that is created in your mind, right? You, you, it's either created right. through time, you have a relationship with certain people, and so there's a context what is what is context, right? And the reality is, is that we all have our own unique context, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea of culture or society is that we have certain shared experiences that create a shared context. Right, for example, they define millennials as people who were uh, aware of 9-11. So they were like three or four mm -hmm. years old uh, by 2001. Right, so there's a context they have that they share. And mm -hmm. the idea is, is the, 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 um, uh, the hope, let's just put it that way, is that if we could build a robust computational system that you know manages these these, these this uh, this web of decisions and documents that the nature of such a system actually embodies the core uh, the, the the people learn like you know the 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 the, the, the kingdom the continent of Sophia right that's the, the land uh, the imaginary land with the magic documents that could automatically authenticate the um, the authenticity, uh, they're, they're self, they document their authenticity, but they make the, the person who's saying this, you know, has to be telling the truth, and it's sort of inscribed uh, uh, immutably on these documents. So in this society, uh, the thing that people learn is precisely the system of trust that governs these documents, right? You know, like right now, we all you know, grow up in the U.S. where you have to learn American history and your state history, and it gives you this, you know, theory, the shared context of what it means to be an American or a citizen or a Californian, uh, like that, and uh, something else to communicate that this is really important because the adults sit down and look really serious when they talk about it. Uh, religion performed a similar role in the pre-nation state, uh, giving that shared context. But the idea is that in, in our docuracy, the thing that you must learn is, in fact, the system that governs and maintains these documents. And in doing so, you will be gaining uh, both a sense of their emotional importance and their intellectual content. And that uh, idea is that the shared context uh, of working with and using this system and understanding and evolving it is the uh, necessary and perhaps sufficient context for sustaining a universal culture uh, where, you know, people can have very different mores and systems, but as long as they have this uh, shared context of having to work within this uh, you know, worldwide document and decision store, we need a better name for that. Um, I guess you can call it DocuNet for now. Yeah, you uh, say worldwide. <laughs> That is yeah. Uh, you want to be interplanetary, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, and I'm I'm not talking just technical. I'm talking. Well, then you have a bunch of cultures, a bunch of histories, a bunch of opinions, and I don't know how you can. Uh, but no, have well, a well, but, they, they, but well, well, this is the point. Is that you don't start from yeah. human culture and history to get them to um, to try and build this out of that. You start with actually the, so let's, let's call it DocuNet for now, right? There's this technical problem. Mm. So one of the interesting things 
is like URLs, for example, um, have sort of become the default, uh, uh, arguably the most universal piece of content in human history, right? If you give someone a URL, they will visually recognize it and put it in a browser and it will give them something that, mm -hmm. you know, it can then be translated or manipulated in various other ways. And that's created this shared uh, concept that it transcends right languages and cultures and technical platforms in a way that's really inconceivable uh that would have been inconceivable 30 years ago right mm -hmm. uh, i will have to ask that chinese person that same thing i don't know how they i don't know how they type in urls i don't know if they use so, chinese well first of all you you do have um uh, international characters for urls mm -hmm. But the uh, HTTP colon slash slash part is kind of fixed, right? So that is a bit of linguistic imperialism from the West. Uh, I grant you that. But it's still there, right? And it, it has, uh, and so, you know, they've been trying very hard to make domain names themselves more international and language neutral. But, yeah, you know, one, of, one of the dreams that you know, I do have is to try and find some sort of uh, you know, start again and create some more rational, linguistic, phonetic uh, character system which doesn't have all the cultural baggage of Rome and, or whatever. Um, mm. But and the reality is, is that, you know, uh, it's not easy, but it's not inconceivable. Uh, but the point is, is it is something that, as, as it is today, people can use it and people do use it with having no clue what HTTP stands for, right? But if they see that they recognize it's mm -hmm. a URL that you can type into a browser. A QR code are roughly equivalent to that, right? If you see a QR code, uh, that's actually an even better one, right? If you see a QR code, people all over the world in different cultures, maybe not as widely as HTTP URLs, but similar, right? They see that mm -hmm. they, they know that they know that they can do something with it and that they can then um, get something of value. And they also kind of know that like, okay, just reading the QR code is unlikely to cause me any damage, so it's a safe thing to do. Uh, and there's you know, different layers of tools that protect them. So there are these things of, of, of transcultural artifacts that people have learned how to interact with. I mean, before the 1990s, you would talk about a can of Coke, right? Yeah. Um, which is just a thing that, you know, um, I get much more proprietary, but there's a sense in which you can create these, and the, the anyway, uh, I'm rambling a bit, but that was a, I know. A, it's yeah. not rambling. It's just things that we have to do to come up with something. We have to address both pros and cons. We have to act both as, as the, as the uh, what is it, the, uh, the devil's advocate and the the one who you know all this is yeah, have, in our have, heads right. because we have to yeah, uh, but, but think, address. Yeah, but I, you're right. And whether or not this is the right solution, yeah. The, the argument, yeah, I think is we are trying to characterize the problem. So there's not just the problem of the syntax, uh, that's the point. Like, like the syntax really determines the readability, kind of how well-formed it is. But the semantics determine the understandability, which is a hard problem and one that historically uh, people have um, avoided talking about, frankly. Right? Is that, yeah, because you know, it's so hard. Scientists say almost nothing about semantics. There are people who worry about these things. Uh, they tend to be philosophers, and but they tend to 
like like one of the definitions I've heard of a philosopher is someone who tries to explain things using natural language, as opposed to trying someone who uses tries to explain the world using mathematical systems and formulas, which I just find as a ridiculous constraint. And there is such a thing as computational philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a niche field. But it's like, you know, it seems to be, like it seems obvious to me that if you are serious about doing philosophy, you would want to encode your beliefs in simulational models to see if you can actually demonstrate their truth. Uh, and you know, how well they work. You know, you know, because it is it is fairly trivial to create a economic model that demonstrates pure laissez-faire capitalism is unstable, right? And leads to all these horrible consequences. And yet there are people who still espouse that philosophy, um, even calling themselves objectivists and people who believe in scientific truth. Um, mm -hmm. even though it's like the opposite of that in terms of how it plays out. So there's all these weird so the idea is that this is that so the idea is that this culture so so, so, so there's so 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 DocuNet, if you don't if you don't object to that name, is this system for uh, and it's a built system, which is in protocols and implementations and you know, like in any other good open source internet standard. Right, there should be multiple implementations that interoperate, um, but that have, um, you know, various protocols that they all agree on for how they exchange things. And, um, but the, whole, the, the goal is to build not just the, um, the user view of how people, you know, create and consume documents, but the developer view of how they manage and produce those uh, documents and, and shift them around. And the idea is that the system itself has to embody those values. And in the way that it is constructed, it gives an operational definition of the key semantics of culture and society. And the hope is that if you could build this sort of a system, you would, of necessity, have to embody in that system these core concepts of governance in a way that gives you a, a, a semantic reference point or context that um, ultimately, you know, so, it, 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 you know, initially the idea is that this is just parallel to our human languages. It's a conlang that's used as the domain language for describing problems. But the idea is that then people build an emotional attachment to the way this system thinks in, about things and resolves problems that ends up infecting and maybe even subsuming our traditional human cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a. Uh, yeah, we have to develop a this system that can, like I said, simulate, maybe or emulate how we think in in our head. Um, you know, we have quantum compute computers now that operate on qubits. That uh, it doesn't. Um, you know, it could be one zero, it could be one and zero, and, and all those things, and you mix them together, and they come up with a with a response, right? But then you have to do that many times because there's margin of error, margin of errors, and things like that. And but that we're just dealing with, I don't know, numbers. We're not dealing with concepts. But it's, I, I see that as a similar process. Actually, our brains are quantum computers. Because we, our brains operate ourselves, operate in the quantum realm, but you know, that's uh, another discussion. Right. Quant but, yeah, quantum, quantum, yeah, quantum, by the way, there's interesting uh, uh, terminology here. 
So um, quantum consciousness is a very controversial term with Penrose and all of that, um, even though it seems plausible to me by asking Razor. But there's another term which is quantum cognition, which is to say to model human thought processes, you have to be able to use uh, imaginary numbers uh, uh, the way that quantum mechanics does. And that is an empirical fact is that we, in order to, uh, without making any statements about the underlying mechanisms the way quantum consciousness does, you need something like quantum cognition to explain how human beings actually make decisions. Um, and so, but, but I think there's, there's two things, right? Is that uh, you actually want, um, um, but so like you need to have a digital system because uh, you want something that's repeatable and predictable and robust and infinitely replicable, which you know quantum systems are not. Um, but the point is, is the the um, ah that's the really point is that the system itself uh, you want to have digital proxies for let's just call them analog because a quantum computer is really an analog computer in a sense. It's an analog system that is not reducible to its digital components. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you want to have a, a digital system that respects the analog and acknowledges it as a thing and can characterize it and leave space for it, which is very much, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, whether it's a quantum computer or a human being, these non-deterministic, non-digital systems uh, need to be respected by our digital system. And in fact, it is that interface, which is actually the hard part of the problem, is defining those interfaces between the analog and the digital, between the human and the mechanical, that make the system resilient and robust. And, you know, make the point that, you know, hey, the system is only as good as the people who are running the system, right? And you can build the system to be more censorship tolerant, like a good crypto chain. Oh, by the way, have you been reading, do you, I think you with Solano? Uh, no, no. Before it's Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of the big two, right, in mm -hmm. terms of cryptocurrency. Uh, but a good uh, contender for number three that a lot of people I follow who've been in the space are excited about is called Solano. And the interesting mm -hmm. thing about Solano is they say, okay, the problem with Bitcoin is that even if, you know, proof of work is really expensive, um, because it's so expensive, there's only like, like there's like three... Uh, consortiums that make up over 50% of the blockchain, which means that those three colluded, they could, you know, subvert the blockchain. So it doesn't matter how expensive something is, if it doesn't, if it leads to a concentration of power that makes the blockchain unresistant. So I said, well, what if the only thing we cared about was ensuring that the validators uh, had a widely dispersed concentration of power? And then we don't mm -hmm. have to worry about proof of stake or proof of work or anything. We just, uh, ensure that we have dispersal of validation. And that's what Solano did. And so they basically have a really lightweight, high throughput, low cost uh, system where the only thing they worry about is making sure that they have a decentralized network of validators. Um, so you're you talking about Solana? Solana? Solano, yes. Yeah. S-O-L-A-N-O, okay. may not pronounce it correctly. Okay, I think it's Solana yeah. with a, an A at the end, but yeah, it's entirely possible. Yeah, there's an A at the end. Yeah, I may be mispronouncing it. So yeah, there's an interesting. So anyway, um, the idea. And why did I mention that? Um, is that the, the, um, 
I have no idea why I mentioned it. I was thinking about it. But the point mm-hmm. is, um, I think I've run out of points. I'm just rambling now. <laughs> Do you have anything else you wanted to say? <laughs> uh, well, yes. So that uh, this, well, it, it is a huge, a huge uh, problem, issue, project, whatever. Um, but, you know, somebody has to do it. And I, and, and I think, you know, we can play a, you know, small or big role in that because uh, uh, we need that. I mean, we need that. And people say, oh, AI is going to dominate the world. Well, no, because AI is, 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 is nothing. AI is, is just math. And uh, it cannot uh, replicate the, the... When we are conceived, that's when we start learning. That when when our, some cells... Uh, uh, you know, get together in, in in our heads. That's when we start knowing the world from the from the womb. So unless we can replicate that in a computer, uh, unless we can make a computer be born in in a womb, uh, whether artificial or maybe even natural, I don't know. Uh, it is not possible for at least at this time, at least in the next I don't know 100 years, I think, for a comp- a uh, artificial system to replicate the human mind. But the human mind is everything we talked about, words, concepts, uh, contexts, all that stuff. Experiences, yeah. Human. So yeah. we, uh, yeah. we can. Uh, yeah. I think the problem is worse than that. If we did that, if we could do that, uh, uh, Scott Aronson has a wonderful essay called The Ghost in the Machine. And he's kind of he's himself sort of a hardcore materialist and and all that. Because the reality is if you created a quantum computer that was sufficiently rich to uh, able to code it, it would have all the same downsides as a human being, right? It would be dependent on its experiences. It would be uninfectable. And it's like uh, the virtues of what makes us human are precisely the limitations. And that it's like, well, okay, we'd have to manage it the exact same way we manage humans. Like how well were they trained? What experiences have they had? What incentives do they have to keep them honest? And that uh, analog systems by their very nature are not reproducible. And I mean, I think that's really the fundamental philosophical position you and I agree on, which is controversial in Silicon Valley, is that there's a fundamental difference between the analog and the digital. And uh, interestingly, if you're a believer in strong quantum computing, then you actually implicitly endorse that same viewpoint. And it's like, and I think about that, that is actually probably a good line of question to take when we meet with these different people that I promised I'm going to schedule at some point, <laughs> and mm-hmm. is that like say, okay, well, uh, the virtue of universal readability, uh, you know, uh, on the digital side, but then uh, the syntax and the platform independence, things like that. But then the question of the semantics uh, of the how do you include humans in the loop? Uh, that's, I think, uh, at least an interesting question that we can ask that might push people to think and answer in ways that'll move the conversation forward. Because most people want to sit on the comfortable, digital, tractable, um, mechanical problems. But the really interesting ones to us are, A, we're, maybe that's our, our, our interesting value add in this space, is that you and I care deeply about analog problems of human society and virtue and values and humanity. But we also believe that te- digital technical tools have enormous uh, utility in addressing those problems. And it is shocking that there are relatively few people at those intersections. 
Mm-hmm. And if we can start a conversation there, uh, uh, you know, maybe we will have actually accomplished something uh, that will help humanity. Yes, help humanity without the. Uh, um, did you say Google just now? Sorry. Uh, help humanity without you know. Let's not leave. Let's not make Google the one to determine how this computer works or whatever, because you know Google will have Google's interests on. Uh, you know, it has well, to be yeah, an, an, I, I, an open. It, 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 so ironically about this, there's a wonderful um, uh, sort of a dark statement, but I was reading about the 1940s and fascism. And one of the things that the fascist movement believed in is that fascism was a superior form of government such that the only way that they could be defeated is if the other countries in the world themselves became fascist. Um, you know, and I'm not even oh. sure I understand what that word means, but the idea is mm-hmm. that you, you mobilize uh, all the country's resources and support of mm-hmm. imperial aid. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is that, you know, in some sense, they were right in that you know, the military industrial complex that America created uh, in response to Germany did run the country for 20 years or so. But it was interesting in that the, the, uh, the fears of that appeared to have proved unfounded in that, uh, you know, we did successfully demilitarize America uh, after Reagan. Um, and, you know, well, certainly, you know, we're not saying uh, we have avoided, you know, embarking on an imperial program of global context. And, you know, while military, you know, one just want to make a case that the military has too much influence over the budget of the government, it has remarkably little influence over the economy and our daily lives. Right, Google is generally considered a far greater threat, or Facebook is generally considered a far more dangerous threat to democracy than, say, Boeing or Hughes uh, Aircraft. Right, so, mm-hmm. so somehow we escape mm-hmm. the bullet of fascism. But the interesting thing about this humanitarian approach we are taking, of you know, humanistic technology, is that once you start going down this road, you it's what they call counterpositioning. Like Google can't do this because their whole reason of being is to digitize everything and remove the human equation, right? So for Google, for Google to combat a system like this, this fork, is they would have to become more humane um, and more self-aware and more in touch with analog values and have greater respect and dignity for human beings. And if they did that, well, then Google's not a threat anymore, right? Because the whole reason they're yeah. a threat is because they're a problem. Google solved the problem. <laughs> yeah. Just like so that, either that we is. solve the problem, or we inspire people to compete with us, and they solve the problem in order to outdo us. Uh, because you know, we just have to be more humane than the technologists, and more technical than the humanists, which frankly is fairly easy at this point. <laughs> and then they have to up their game to compete with us, and that's how we get humanity to forge, is by changing the game. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, are you still there? Oh, yeah, the uh, uh, the 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 goal of Tesla, you know, uh, uh, Musk's Tesla, is was to introduce electric cars to the world, right? Mm, in yeah. that case, in in that he, he or the company was successful, but then now they have a bunch of competition. So I, I don't know if that's the goal. That is, I, I don't think they're happy. Oh yeah, we're happy that Acura and and uh, 
why, why all those companies are uh, kind of investing Tesla in, in some ways. Because, okay, personally, I wouldn't buy Tesla because uh, I hear stories about the fit and finish and things like that. And, and I am a, I like fit and finish. I like things uh, like Volkswagen even, or Acura, or Volvo, that they really um, strive to, to create things that are almost perfect, you know, with the, uh, uh, yeah, the fit and finish. They, they obsess over that. It's like you're that's an right Apple guy. Deep down, you're still an Apple guy, right? You want to have mm -hmm. the maniacal focus on jewel-like perfection. Um, yeah, but yeah. ideally without the, uh, uh, the, the you know, and you know, so anyway, uh, yeah, and 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 what you, what you really want is actually a world kind of like the way the mobile phone, but that there are standards that everyone follows with, where it doesn't really matter. But uh, there's a place for jewel-like perfection, um, mm -hmm. but it, it exists enough of a competitive market that uh, people have to uh, that 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 there's uh, ways to release the pressure. So you don't get locked into abusive situations. And it, it, it's always a challenge. It's always a tension. You always need some human decision makers to say, you know, we need to change the rules to make sure the ecosystem as a whole involved. <sighs> anyway, all right. I finished my grocery shopping. I should probably get on with my day and let you get on with yours. But this one's good. I don't know what it, uh, yes, it's good. I, I may go with uh, uh, maybe DocuNet culture. I don't know or. Uh, uh, um, uh, I can't think of a better title than that unless you have an idea. So I think we touched on something profound here uh, about maybe it's uh, um, uh, you know, something around digitizing the semantics of civilization or something like that. But um, mm -hmm. I'll see if I can come up with a better title by the time I post this. Mm -hmm. uh, I also found a new uh, service called Descript, which claims to be good at producing transcripts. Uh, so you know, uh, small bag thing. Uh, and so, um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All it. right. Thank you, Ernest. God willing, I'll find us a guest to talk to next week. Oh, uh, exciting! Thank you, Ernest. All right. God bless you. Have a great week. Bye. You too. Thank you. Bye bye.